Um, I guess the, the, the thing that I really wanted to get to in this interview, you know, you have said you've taught so many amazing things. You've taught uh, self-improvement, you've taught sales, you've taught book writing skills, you've taught business skills, you've taught leadership skills, you've taught speaking skills. And everything that I've read of yours is amazing in the way that it structures things so clearly. It, I can't help read one of your books and come out like I want to rugby tackle the world. You know, I'm like, yeah, let's go do it. Um, and so there's no point, I feel, us covering too much of that again, because people can get that in focal point or the psychology of achievement or the psychology of sales. Or, but what I'd love to do is, is get to know you. You know, you've been a huge part of my life. And yet the, I think the most that I know about you is the story of how you really got started very early on when you made that transformational shift and you decided that life didn't have to that you could decide what life was going to be like rather than have life Im impose itself on you. So what I would love to, to understand is, is for you to take us back to the beginning and maybe to just explore some of the milestones in your career. You know, where did you change jobs? What was important to you? What changed? Where did you come from? Um, and then maybe to explore some of the obstacles, you know, were there any moments there where it almost didn't happen, you know, where we almost weren't sat here today and how did you overcome some of those obstacles and, and almost uh, teach some of your awesome ideas through those moments? Oh, great. I I would like to be able to tell you that there were uh, great explosions and, and moments of clarity that were life-changing. Um, but I talk about goals. I teach goals. I'm, I'm the best-selling author on goals in the world. And I love goals, and they've been instrumental to me. But I don't plan that far ahead. People say, what were your five-year, ten-year goals? No, I would say five or ten hours or days um, and, and they're, they're very close. Uh, so I don't, I, I do set long-term goals, lots of them, but then I bring my focus down to the, where I'm, maybe I want to climb the mountain, but I look at my feet, where's my next foot go? And 100%. Uh, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. I started off, uh, as I said, in my books, I didn't graduate from high school and, uh, I started off, um, from the age of 10, I earned my own money. I paid for my own clothes. I paid for my own schools, public schools, not public schools in the British sense, but public schools in the U.S. and Canada or the schools that are open to everyone. Um, and uh, so I just basically survived as I uh, reacted and and re-reacted and, and, and did what seemed to be the logical thing to do to survive, to keep mm -hmm. on moving forward. Uh, I got all, into all kinds of trouble in school, which I learned later was because of my problems with my parents. Mm -hmm. My parents were uh, honest. That's my father's British. Um, <laughs> That's enough was, to ruin any childhood. <laughs> my mother was uh, uh, Irish. Uh, her parents were Irish and immigrated to Canada, and they met in Toronto and uh, got married. But they uh, were incompetent parents they didn't know they i don't think my parents ever told me or any of my children my brothers and there's four of us all together myself and three brothers they never told us ever that they loved us um just never occurred to them um because they basically felt their their job was to provide for us they mm -hmm. became pregnant because my mother was intensely catholic and they probably didn't believe in birth control and it's there was no clarity my father um, was not a good provider. Uh, he was intelligent. He was well-read, but um, he was not a good provider. My mother was a nurse, so very often she would have to work two eight-hour shifts and to provide for our family. She would go to work at 7 in the morning, come home at midnight, and be back at the hospital for the, the 7 to 3 shift in the uh, the three to 11 shift and so on. And so those, those, this is what I saw. And the children were just a pain. Um, mm. And uh, so I didn't get anything from that except a resolution later not to do uh, what they did. Yeah. And uh, I, one of the decisions that I made is uh, when I grew up and had children of my own, I made a decision that I would never, never, never do to my children what my parents did to me. Um, and I didn't. So my parent, my children have been raised with a wonderful life. Uh, they've never been punished. They've never been criticized. Um, they have never been made to feel anything 
other than they are wonderful, talented people. And uh, that has turned out to be wonderful because our relationship with our children, all growing, my youngest child's 28, all growing, um, is phenomenal. We just are the best of friends. Mm. Uh, the three of them are married with children. Uh, and that's awesome. uh, so that's seven grandchildren all together. So it's been uh, really good. And my wife comes from a good family, uh, but her family was poor. They had 10 children. You know, wow. the old, the old the joke about the Catholic uh, couple goes to the hospital to have their 10th child. And the doctor says, well, I guess we'll see you in here in another year. And <laughs> she says, no, no, no. He said, we found out what's causing them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was kind of a funny thing. Um, so Barbara, but Barbara had high aspirations when she was young um, and she worked really hard picking up beer bottles and beer cans along the highway and turning them in for refunds. And she went to school and her father worked uh, overnight as a uh, meat, as, as a, uh, what would you call it? A, um, a, a sort of a, a caretaker in a meatpacking plant. So basically, he just walk around. And if you know anything about meatpacking plants, they have these little um, sort of clocks, dials around the plant. And the person who is on guard, if you like, going through the plant at night has to check in to each one of these so that it's clear that they actually were doing well, their job. Oh, wow. Clever. Yeah. So that's what he did. He'd come home at uh, six or seven or eight o'clock at night. He'd sleep all day. The kids would have to be uh, quiet, uh, uh, small house. But he was a good man, just, just no education. He grew up on a farm, left school in the fourth grade, and he just worked hard. And his wife, Teresa, my um, Barbara's mother, was an absolutely excellent person. And um, so that was her background. And uh, so we got attracted to each other um, and it was almost like love at first sight. When, when did that happen? How old were you? That happened in, trying to think, 1977, 1977. I uh, was um, in my 30s at that time and I decided I had a conversation with an intelligent woman and I said, I wanted to run for prime minister someday. And, uh, but I'm not sure if I should get more education because I dropped out of high school. And she said, did you ever hear of a successful politician who was not a college graduate? And I never had. So I said, okay. And there was an ad in the paper and it was basically uh, for an executive MBA. You could mm -hmm. take an executive MBA, it took two years, about 2,000 hours, and mm -hmm. uh, you studied evenings, weekends, and summertime, and then you got an MBA. And it said on there, it said uh, credit given for lifetime experiences. So I <laughs> all the application, and um, then I, when they called me in for the interview, and they said, oh my God, we didn't put in the ad that you had to have an undergraduate degree in order to take a master's degree. And uh, I learned later that they had a big faculty committee meeting and they discussed this and, and, and they were really concerned about uh, a series of laws called bait and switch, where people, dishonest people would advertise certain things and, um, and reel in customers and then they would switch them to something else. So yeah. they were very correct. And they finally said, well, if you can pass the entry exams, for the university, um, yeah. which each person has to write, then we will have to let you in. We'll have to actually retro, retrospectively give you an undergraduate degree in commerce, and we have to let you in to get a uh, graduate degree. Wow. And so I studied for two or three months. I studied night and day copies of the exams. I don't know if you have the same thing in the US, in, in, in the UK. Yeah. So I studied and studied and studied and studied and got tests, got books, on how to write the tests and books yeah. on the kind of questions they would have. And I got a really good score. Uh, I, I, got, I got basically 99 percentile in um, reading and literature and uh, much lower percentile in math. 
yeah. but my lower, higher percentile in uh, literature brought up my percentile. So I was off and learning. I got a two-year degree, and I, as I joke with people, my audiences, I say, how many of you have an MBA or graduated from university? I said, did you learn a damn thing that was in <laughs> Everybody laughs because you don't. And so I told them that was my experience. And um, um, But I started off my life just basically surviving. Yeah. And almost everything that I did was a reaction to uh, circumstances. Yeah. I ran out of money and uh, your situation is different from mine, but eating, I say, is a great motivator. And uh, <laughs> I, had, I had zero funds. And so I had to find a job and work. Yeah. And I did anything when I was... 23 years old, I was working as an itinerant farm laborer uh, during the harvest. Mm-hmm. And an itinerant farm laborer is someone who works during the harvest. They have to bring on laborers to bring the harvest in before the first frost. Yeah. So I slept in the farmer's barn, I ate with the farmer's family, and we got out into the fields by first light and just worked all day to get the crop in. Mm-hmm. And they paid well. You know, you're working 10, 12 hour days. And the pay was good, and I slept uh, in the barn. And at the end of the harvest, uh, they lay you off. They pay you off and lay you off, and uh, so you have to move on. And uh, when I tell this story, I said, then the only job I could get was knocking on doors, uh, selling. So I got a job. I was was in this. I was traveling, and I was out in Bangkok, and I was in this what they what they call travelers sort of club or place where they hang out. And somebody came in and said, I'm looking for somebody to sell bonus uh, uh, books. And these were basically cards, like a credit card, yeah. that they had about 100 different um, restaurants that had agreed to give discounts, yeah. 10, yeah. 25% yeah. on different days, and so on. So I, I, had, I had worked on this in Johannesburg uh, two, three years before. I had worked in a company like this. And I realized they didn't have anything like this in Thailand. So I told the guy who was trying to sell advertising, I told him about this idea. So he started a whole new business and I was the first salesman. And I just knocked on doors because there were about 10,000 expatriates in uh, greater uh, Bangkok. So, uh, so wait, so, I, I missed a link. So you were you were working on the farm that was in the US and then you oh, moved actually, to- that, that was in Germany. In Germany, okay, wow. <laughs> In uh, 1967, uh, uh, the end of 67, and then uh, I, I had met a uh, German crossing the Sahara Desert, and I had come <laughs> and looked him up, and he and I uh, hit it off. We became friends, and he helped me get this job. Uh, and while I was, and before I had the job, he helped me get a room. There are very strict laws about people staying in other people's facilities in Germany. They're very yeah. Alles muss in Ordnung sein. Ja, kannst du Deutsch auch? Ja, ich spreche Deutsch, ja. Ah, war super. I have to, there's like part of me that knows we have to move this interview forward and part of me where you keep on like opening these amazing things in your backstory, which we haven't explored. Because what I have right now is, so I understand you grow up, parenting sounds very Victorian, you know, don't mollycoddle the children, getting on with your own stuff, no love. Um, you know, mom's working hard. Dad sounds like he's got a curious mind, may account for where you've come, your curiosity comes from. And then you, you're you working hard, you, you're reacting, you start earning money age 10, you drop out of high school. And then suddenly the next thing I have is you're in, you're crossing the Sahara Desert and you meet a German. <laughs> and then and then you're 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 doing the farm in Germany and then you're in Thailand. And there are so many uh, <laughs> links that I'd love to, but, but it, it, I mean, it sounds amazing. What were you doing in the Sahara well, Desert? Out of interest? I grew up in, in Vancouver, British yeah. Columbia, and uh, I dropped out of high school and I got a job in a sawmill, uh, yeah. st- stacking lumber, sometimes all night, the um, yeah. night show. Wow. And, um, and it paid well. It was, a, it was a unionized job and it paid well. So I had a small apartment, one of these rental apartments where they rent out three different bedrooms to different traveling males yeah. and uh, and then they use the living room and the kitchen and the bathroom yeah uh, commonly and um, at the end of uh, I got two friends and we we're talking about traveling after we finished school and and 
we said, well, let's, it's, I, I tell this in my seminars, I say, everybody at that time was getting backpacks and going to England or going to Europe to travel mm -hmm. around with backpacks. That was the big deal. Mm -hmm. Many of our friends had done that. They came, we came, they came from much better families. They had lots of money and so on. Uh, we didn't have uh, a lot of money. And so we all worked in sawmills uh, and we decided we'd build up our money. This is how we did it. We said, how are we gonna get, we need a thousand dollars, which would be five or eight today. We need a thousand dollars. So what we did is we started saving $5 a week each into a common account. Yeah. And the first um, month, second month, we saved $10 a week. And third month, we saved $15 a week. And it took us about four months to get to over $1,000. Wow. And with that, I had a, an, what they call a junker, an old car. And we got in this junker on a September night and set out and drove all the way across Canada to Montreal to get a job on a ship to work our way across uh, <laughs> the Atlantic. And we had decided since everybody else was going to uh, Europe and hitchhike around in Europe, we would do something nobody else was doing. We'd go to Africa. And yeah. uh, we had our, to our total knowledge of Africa was one page torn out of a, an atlas that had all of Europe and all of Africa Africa on the same page, yeah. and that was our that was our operating plan. And uh, we set away to different consulates and embassies uh, and travel agencies to get information on uh, Africa. And they all came back, and they were just traveling and staying at fabulous hotels, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and and going on safaris and everything else. And that was of no value to us because we couldn't afford even afford to stay in one hotel. Uh, so we said, now, how are we going to get from uh, London down to uh, Gibraltar? And we uh, said, well, we've never heard of anybody riding bicycles uh, across Africa. So we would ride bicycles across Africa and we would get fit by riding them across Europe. And so we traveled across at Calais and uh, started riding. We, we, and we found that my, my joke in my book is that is that all the hills are uphill and the wind is constantly in your face. <laughs> and I said, this seems like a, you know, a geographical impossibility, but, <laughs> but it's true. So we worked our way and rode bicycles and slept on the side of the road. And we felt that riding the bicycles would make us stronger. And then we'd ride bicycles across Africa. And of course, all wow. we, our, 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 our metal set was riding bicycles in Canada or, or the UK. And uh, but by the time we got to Gibraltar, we were, exhausted the bikes were shot and the idea of traveling on bikes across africa was insane and so we traded in all um our bicycles and the money we had left and we bought a land rover mm. and we did that because we and then we didn't have any money left but then then we would be forced to figure out how to get to africa and so we sat down and we wrote letters we sat there's a little beach uh under the big rock of gibraltar we said we, that was where we camped and lived and slept next to our Land Rover. And we just were, sent letters to everybody that we knew in the world uh, and, and begged for money. And uh, we got $50 here and $25 there. And uh, then one friend of Jeff's father from England sent us $300. And $300 was the equivalent of $1,000 at that time. And we almost fainted. I and mean, we opened it up. We couldn't believe it. But that was enough to get us across to Gibraltar, to supply with food. And then we started working our way across the Sahara with the uh, uh, Land Rover. And there's much more to it. It's all written in my book, Many Miles to Go. Many Miles um, to Go. Okay, that's one I have to pick up. Um, okay. I, yeah, I know, because I'm sure, I mean, I could spill the next 30 minutes just talking about that leg of your journey, but let's let's get forward. So you're, so you, you, then you're in Germany, you do the, um, the farm work. I mean, it, I can hear, I wish I could pick apart, but in everything you've talked about, I can see the seeds of what you became later and what you wrote about the, the ability to work hard, the ability to think through some of these problems, the ability to leverage other people's time and money and, and to work as a team, even the financial education, like the ability to save and grow a business. There's so many little seeds that are planted, which are um, amazing. And so then you're, so then we skip forward and you're in Thailand. So you, you're in Germany. So wait, so I'll, just, I'll summarize it quickly. We traveled across yeah. Canada, worked on a ship. We broke up and they 
bought passage on a ship and I stayed and worked in construction in Montreal. Yeah. And then we took a ship in the springtime and we met up. Then we bought bicycles in London. We rode them to Gibraltar, got a Land Rover, and then worked our way across the desert. The Land Rover broke down. <laughs> we lost all of our money. We were robbed of uh, um, almost all of our stuff. And we finally made it across the desert. And we found that if we had not had all of those problems, yeah. uh, we would have died in the desert. When, yeah. when we first started traveling, it's an interesting point. Uh, we would say, where, they would say, where are you going? This is in, in, in Algeria or, or, or Morocco. They said, we're going across the Sahara Desert to Africa. And these were, they, they said, no, no, you can't do that. You'll die in the desert. I said, no, we're not going to die in the desert. We're going to just go across. There's a road. No, no, you die in the desert. You can't cross this desert. It's too big. And, and I, 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 I joke that these were not other tourists. These were Bedouins and tourists, <laughs> people who had lived in the Sahara for a thousand years. Yeah. And uh, I spoke French by this time. I had learned French when I was working on construction in Montreal. And French is the lingua franca of mm -hmm. North North and Southwest Africa. And so I said, you must be kidding. And so we, we would continue our travel from village to town to town. And we'd, they'd ask, who are you? And where are you going? We're going to cross the Sahara. And they'd say, oh no, vous allez mourir dans le bus. Vous allez mourir dans le bus. I said, vous faites. Yes. <laughs> Everybody said, you'll die in the desert. You thought you'll die in the desert. And then we finally got to the desert after so many problems. And then we realized, why they were telling us that because if we had not had breakdowns and problems and setbacks and everything else we would have died in the desert yeah and yeah. In, in crossing the desert you don't get a second chance yeah, yeah and yeah. 1300 people that died in the desert going off with our, our idea i would just just jump in and work our way across and so we got worked our way down it's a long story to johannesburg i stayed there for a year jeff my partner uh, we were three of us. One of us left us in Algeria. Jeff left me in Johannesburg. Eventually, I came back to my ship. To uh, I worked in Johannesburg for an advertising agency. I learned how to write advertising copy. Mm -hmm. when, whenever I needed to learn something, I would study and study and study. Mm -hmm. And I saw an ad in the paper, and it was a beautiful ad looking for a copywriter, a junior copywriter. So I went and I applied for the job as a junior copywriter. And the gentleman was a very nice man, very nice man, very professional, sort of university, British university graduate. And uh, after we had discussed about the job, I remember he said, why are you here? He said, why are you taking up my time? He said, you have no education. You have no background in writing, correspondence, business work, uh, nothing. Why? why? I said, oh. I, and he said, well, you're welcome. Thank you for coming in, but there's no possibility of your working for us. There's a small company. So I said, well, what, should, what do I need to do differently? He said, well, you need to look, learn what copy is. I didn't know what copy was. And copy is advertising. There were things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so I went down to the library and I checked out a book on how to write copy. And I read the book. Uh, I was working as a junior trainee for a uh, department store chain. It's called OK Bazaars. It was the biggest chain in Southern Africa. And so I would just take all my time. I would just read and study copyright. And then I would go to another um, advertising agency. I look in the yellow pages and I check to see the size. And I went from the lowest one. I would apply for a job and get turned down. And I'd ask why and how could I improve my application next time? Mm -hmm. And they would tell me. And then I'd go back and I'd read some more. And then I'd go back and next week I'd go back and apply for another job. And finally, I worked my way all the way up to the second biggest advertising agency in Africa. And they hired me. They hired me as a junior copywriter because by this time I could write, I could write copy tests, I could do everything yeah. else. And the day that I was going to start, I got a phone call and they said, we're sorry. Um, the person who was going to leave has changed their mind and they're going to stay. So we have to withdraw the job offer. However, we're so impressed with your copy test that we've recommended you to some friends of ours at a company called Lindsay Smithers, which is the number one <laughs> biggest advertising agency in Africa. And they would very much like to meet with you. 
And I met with them and they hired me uh, to work uh, as a junior copywriter and to get basically writing advertising for newspapers, radio, television, magazines, and so on, supervised. So I became very, very good at writing copy. And mm. copy is, is basically words, it's a sales on paper. It's words yeah. you anyway so uh then and it's not just uh, words it's not it, what i love about copy is it's the i mean writing clearly means thinking clearly so you have to think clearly but to write compelling copy you have to understand the people who you're writing for and so it's a, an exercise yeah. incredible exercise in psychology <laughs> and, and, and understanding your own psychology and it lasts me all my life so then yeah. i then i lots of other parts to it but then i took a meanwhile i was taking karate uh and, and i was <laughs> I went to a karate school uh, run by one of the top karate experts in Southern Africa, Stan Schmidt, but I told him I didn't have any money, which I didn't, but I wanted, and I had started taking karate in Montreal, but could I take lessons anyway? And he uh, said sympathy on me and he said, okay, you can come to my school, school without paying. And he had two schools and the schools alternated. There were Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and Tuesday, uh, Thursday and Saturday. And so I went to both schools. I was started and then and then they had two classes each uh, afternoon and evening. And I began attending the, was, was, you're supposed to go either one one school or the other, one class per day, three days a week. Well I ended up going six days and two classes a day for six months. And I got a black belt in karate, which was requires an enormous amount of determination. Plus, yeah. it enables you to be fast on your feet. Plus, it gives you a lot of confidence. And then I entered in the national uh, championships and came in third, um, which was anyway. So then I just went just to just to pause. So I want to I want to go back because I, I think it's important for me to keep track of this to try these threads together. So you have this this burning desire not to make the same mistakes as your parents and to you know to keep doing things and to see the world and, and all this stuff and and then you go out and you start it's almost your your you not only have this drive that's sort of driving you behind there but you also have this you're kind of burning all your bridges behind you, you know no money no stuff so so that's forcing you to get through and also at this stage you're learning some incredibly valuable things so you're learning that there is almost nothing that you can't learn that everything that someone was once good at they could learn you know you learn so you learn to copyright you're learning martial arts you're and all these things are not things that you can cheat. Uh, you can't, there's no shortcuts. You know, you have to just get up and put the effort in and then you see the results at the end. And you're also doing things very intensely, which I think is super important. People try and learn things like languages. They go, I'm going to do Spanish for 20 minutes a day. It's very hard to stay motivated when the progress takes a long time. But when you learn French, because you have to learn it because you're working on a construction site in Montreal, when you, you know, you learn Germany because you're in Germany, when you're learning copywriting because you have to. And, and also at this stage, I can see, so you, I'm seeing the like the meta skills or the, the values start to emerge in you and i'm also starting to see some of these hard skills that would serve you later on so i think language learning incredibly important but especially the copywriting you know at an early age understanding how and why people think the way they do being able to write clearly which you do being able to write compellingly I and mean, everything that i read of yours like i say it 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 makes me want to take action and i can see even when you're not trying to sell something there's that like i'm like gosh i've got to get on and do that um so i'm starting to see that coming through and then with the martial arts there's obviously a lot of um combined with the psychology there's a lot of internal work that goes on there as well with sort of working out what you're capable of what you're not waking up every day constantly getting beaten up and coming back and things like that so so i just wanted to i think so we're, we're at the at that point i just wanted to capture some of those threads because a lot of great stuff in there well thank you it's, in retrospect when i was there i was just trying to survive yeah and i basically did whatever i needed to do to survive i just got an email just before i called you and it was from someone who uh, had driven me to the airport many years ago in salt lake city uh, which is about a thousand miles from here. And I had spoken for there for his company and he had the opportunity to drive me to the airport and he asked me for advice. He's telling me a story. And um, I actually videoed his, his little story. He said, and at the airport, I asked him was one piece of advice that I would give to him to help him to be successful. And I was already a successful uh, professional speaker. And uh, he recalled that I had given him two pieces of advice. And piece of advice number one is never stop learning. Never stop learning. Dedicate yourself, your life to continuous learning. 
And mm, piece of advice number two is never give up. Mm. Never consider the possibility of failure. And if you've read my stuff, you've probably seen this over and Those over. Those resonate. Again. I remember them. <laughs> yeah, well, because the thing is that if you commit yourself to continuous learning, you can learn. That's what you said. You can learn anything you need to learn to achieve any goal you can set for yourself. And what it does that, though, it moves you to a higher level. Yeah. It moves you, and you never go back. You can't. You cannot unlearn a language. You cannot unlearn a skill like karate. Uh, Stan Schmidt, uh, absolutely great man, um, asked me if I would teach one of his. Uh, they had separate schools in, in the suburbs, and uh, they needed a karate instructor to teach three days a week. And would I do it for him? Well, of course, I owed him a lot because he never did charge me. Um, and he came and visited me here, actually, a few years ago. He came to... Came to this is your martial arts instructor. And yeah. um, he had an eighth-degree black belt in Shotokan Karate, which is the Harvard of karate in the world. Wonderful, wonderful man. Anyway, um, so he actually made me an instructor for several months. So I was teaching karate as well as learning karate. It was a Amazing. wonderful experience. And, and, and that's your teaching, because teaching, is when, once I think that's where you also have that realization that teaching a skill is the best way to learn it. You know, you can learn karate and get your black belt, and then you're like, wow, now I have to teach it and break it down and understand how I got there. I can see you nodding. Yeah, I, it's a, yeah. that's a huge epiphany. Yes, it's very true. And so, uh, so, I, so, you, so you lay down a foundation. You can learn anything you need to learn to achieve any goal that you need to achieve. And um, you have to work or you don't eat. And yeah. so uh, I would work and save my money and then travel on. And I, 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 I said in other places is the reason I traveled in 80 countries, uh, I left home and I traveled all around the world in 80 countries was because I'd reach a point where I would stop and work and I would earn a certain amount of money. And it was just the amount that it would take to go home mm. or to travel on. And so I would sort of look at these, go home, travel on. And for eight years, it was travel on. Wow. And Eight so years. I, That's yeah, amazing. So I travel from continent to continent, from country to country, and, and I run out of money and I'd stop and work again. And uh, it's, it's an unusual uh, thing. But, but the, the, the things that I teach people in my, in my books is that you have unlimited potential, uh, but you have to get it out. Yeah. Uh, and the way you get it out is you learn and do, learn and do, learn and do, mm -hmm. learn new skills and then practice and practice and practice. And yeah. By, by gum, you will be successful. Yeah. Here's another thing that's really important to our listeners. Um, it's why did I do all of these things? Yeah. Well, I read and read and read and read and read and read and read. Uh, and I stumbled across some really great one-liners. And one of the one-liners from English literature was, the key to success is find something that you really enjoy and then put your whole heart into becoming good at that. Mm -hmm. And you always must invest enough time to become good at something before you decide not to do it. And I thought, wow, because when you decide to do this, write copy or anything, at the beginning, it's going to be very difficult. And at the beginning, 80, 90% of people quit. They say, this is too hard. I'm not getting positive feedback. It's just, uh, just give, 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 and so on. No, what you have to do is just your whole heart into reaching a certain level of confidence in something and at that level of confidence, you say, do you really want to go on and get even better? And at that point, if the answer is yes, then just keep throwing your heart in. If it isn't, it's time to change and have the courage to change and say, well, I'm competent enough at this, but I don't love it. Yeah. There's a wonderful, wonderful story when uh, uh, Steve Jobs took over Apple in, in 1997 the company he found was uh, three months away from bankruptcy, actually two and a half months. And they basically turned the company back to him because he was the major shareholder. And he went in and he called the accountants in and he said, what is our situation? And they explained to him. He'd been sort of visiting the company and talking to people and asking questions, but he had no idea that they were almost out of money. And um, so he said, what are we going to do? And, and what he did was really interesting is what he did is he called together a hundred, they had 4,000 people worldwide. He called together the hundred top managers, sat them all down and said, look, we have a serious problem here. And um, we, we have 104 products and we need to get rid of some of these products. Mm, and so I want yeah. you, each of you, and put some in, 
divide them into 10 groups, the 10 groups were to pick the 10 products that they thought we should keep. And he said they were shouting and moaning and crying and complaining because people's oxes were being gored and everything else. And then a couple of weeks later, they all came back together and each of them had their list of 10. They combined the lists. And then they said, now I should go back to work and reduce this, this reduced list to 10. And <laughs> shouting, screaming, crying, threatens of quitting because this was their livelihood they, yeah. and so on. And they came back with finally a composite list of 10. He said, yeah. now I want you to reduce it to four. <laughs> and, and this whole thing that took place while well, the company is, is moving toward the cliff of wow. bankruptcy. And uh, they came up with four products and they agreed to cancel a hundred of the products that Apple had developed over the years. Wow. So now they're, but they're still short of money. Well, the story is really wonderful because he um, said, I've got to have a hundred million dollars to keep the company alive. And where am I going to get that money? The only place that I know is Bill Gates, yeah. the founder of Microsoft. And they started their companies at the same time. And, uh, and, and, my, and Steve Jobs had always attacked Microsoft for being stodgy, unoriginal, unimaginative, uh, blah, 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 blah. And they had actually debated on stages in front of uh, hundreds of students and yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was their whole marketing platform. Was was they did the thing where they kind of did the McDonald's versus Burger King or the Pepsi versus Coke. Yeah. They set themselves up as the exactly. So he had been uh, dumping because they had two two um, business plans or, or what we call a, a um, um, uh, business models. Bill Gates' business model was open architecture. Everybody could design. For Microsoft and they could sell on Microsoft and sell via Microsoft and make a fortune on Microsoft. But yeah. and 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 and, and uh, Steve uh, Jobs, his business model was 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 private architecture. Nobody could use it. Nobody could access it. Nobody could um, work on on the, uh, yeah. the the mechanics. And of course, Bill Gates became the richest man in the world. And Steve Jobs is on the verge of bankruptcy. So he, he phoned up. This is, I, I love the story. He phoned up Bill Gates and uh, he said, Bill, and he's, and he's been attacking and insulting <laughs> Bill Gates for 15, 20 years. He said, Bill, he said, I've got a problem. He said, if I don't have a hundred million dollars soon, I said, my mm, Apple's going to go broke. And he said, um, and I know you have lots of money. Um, I need to borrow a hundred million dollars from you. And Bill Gates said, Steve, he said, Apple is too important a company mm. to go broke. He said, and I will give you the hundred million dollars, but I'm not going to lend it to you. I'm going to buy stock mm. in Apple. I'm mm. going to become a shareholder with you. Um, and we'll work together to make Apple successful. Wow. And so he, he basically wrote him a check for a hundred million dollars. And then the next thing that happened, he they put, put up, brought out the iPod um, with a thousand songs or box, and then the iPhone. And they kept bringing him the iPhone, bring him the iPhone, bring him the iPhone. And he kept saying, I don't like it yet. I don't like it yet. And they said, well, what's wrong with it? He said, I don't love it. Yeah. He said, I don't love it yet. And yeah. they kept working on it. And they came up with this round edges for the iPhone. And they gave it to him and he held it. The engineers presented it. Yeah, I love this, he said. Yeah. I love it. It has now become the most successful product in the history of the world. It has generated for him more than two, or for Apple, more than two trillion dollars in profits in the bank. It still is more profitable than any other company, even companies that are much, much larger. And here's the point, is that in the key to this phone, which changed our lives, I'm sure you probably have one within reach of your hand. These, we live with this. Is that he said, I didn't love it yet. Yeah. And, uh, and so the thing in life is what you do is you work at something and you work at it really hard until you love it. And then if you put your whole heart into it uh, because you love it, then you'll be successful. And as Napoleon Hill said, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. You're doing what you love every day. You can hardly wait. You have to have self-discipline and because that's the most important quality for success, that you have to have self-discipline and not work. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. 
to work. You, you, you have to force yourself not to work. You have to have the discipline to push yourself uh, away. I, I find there's there's often a, a switching point, something I've been thinking a lot about recently between survive mode and thrive mode. So a lot of the time when you're in survival, you have to push against things that push you back. You know, you don't want to go to the gym. You force yourself to go. But once you reach that inflection point, which you were talking about earlier, where, you know, that efficiency curve flips over, suddenly the game changes. Suddenly what and where a lot of people get stuck is they get stuck in the habit of pushing against things they don't like instead of switching to the mindset, okay, now I've got momentum, let's move towards the things that I love, you know? And there, there is a moment where that switches, right? Where the, the beginning is always a fight against what pushes against you. And later it becomes a, a moment, it's like gravity reverses and it's like, okay, how do I fly towards the things which, which feel like I'm not working every day? Well, here's, here's you know, I, I became a student of Peter Drucker back in the uh, early seventies, a friend of yeah. mine, uh, who I met, I still remember he, he, uh, he was taking an MBA at the u local university, he's a businessman. He said, and we were talking, he said, have you ever read anything by Peter Drucker? And I never heard of Drucker before. Mm. And he said, oh, he said, oh, Drucker's the best. And I said, well, I respected him. So I went to the library and got a book by Drucker and I came home and I just basically fell down. I was so, I loved it because yeah. Drucker, jump ahead years later I'm taking an MBA myself 10 15 years later and I asked the professor I said why is it that you don't recommend anything by Drucker because they get reading lists and everything yeah, else yeah. and and he looked kind of shy and looked away and he said downfaced he said well he said Drucker summarizes what we write in a book he summarizes <laughs> in a chapter and oh. so we don't want people we don't want our students reading Drucker because it'll just the comparison is is so awful and, and it's true you read a little bit of, of Drucker and then you can read book after book after book and it doesn't improve on Drucker so here's but Brian my I think you you have succeeded in doing much the same thing I, I, I whenever I read one of your books you cover succinctly and beautifully in a section what I then because I spend a lot of time reading and summarizing books and you know you write about habits and I'm like wow he's just said exactly what is said in you know atomic habits and the power of habit and all these things and and every single section of your book I could almost go away and find you a New York Times bestseller that basically said the same thing but in 300 more pages <laughs> and I think that's amazing that is, that is a true statement um that's interesting because um, I've noticed that and people point out to me that the person who has two or 300 pages saying what I summarize. Yeah. If you I want to write a New York Times bestseller, basically just read one of Brian's books and pick a paragraph or a little section that hasn't been a New York Times bestseller yet <laughs> and pitch anyway, it to an agency. The reason I, I mentioned Drucker is because Drucker has a whole series of little uh, one-liners. One of his one-liners was that it takes seven years to be successful in a new business. And he explains that it takes the first two years mm. to learn how to survive, to actually generate more revenue than it's costing you to stay alive. Mm. And so that, and, and Forbes had a study on this. They said, if every, every startup is a race against time, and it's like a plane diving toward the earth. And your job is to pull back on that stick and pull it out of the dive so that you're actually earning more money mm -hmm. than it's costing you to stay alive and you start to turn it around. Mm -hmm. It takes two more years to pay back what you lost uh, or borrowed in the first two years. Mm -hmm. And then it takes three more years, I'm sorry, three more years to profit. Yeah, yeah. And so two, it's two, four, seven, two, four, seven, two, four, seven. And I heard other people when I started speaking, they said it takes seven years to become a successful speaker. And I had been speaking for about four years at that time. And I was struggling really hard. And I said, no damn way, it's not gonna take me uh, seven <laughs> years. And she was the president of the National Speakers Association and she was right. It took seven years. Mm -hmm. So the reason I say this is that many people think, well, I'll start a business and yeah. then I'll be yeah. rich. No, yeah. you're gonna start a business and you're going to become really, really, really good at what you're doing, offering a product or service that people really, really want and are willing to pay for. And 99% of business startups fail because they miss one of those two things yeah. is they, uh, they don't have a product that people want mm -hmm. or they don't have a product that is better than anything else that people can get. The mm -hmm. 
the differentiating factors and, and so on. So I teach, I've taught hundreds of thousands of business owners all over the world. Mm. I put together after decades out of university, I put together a two day MBA, mm. which I give to hundreds, sometimes a thousand people. And it's all with workbooks, exercises, overhead projector charts and so on. And I just walk people through the critical requirements for business success. Mm. And these, and then later about four or five years later, I developed a graduate program called um, business, business Model Reinvention. Mm -hmm. And this is a whole nother, as we say, a whole nother area. It's that we find that because of the incredible turmoil today that 80% of companies are working with obsolete business models. Yeah. And your business model, I say equal, is your profit model. It's how you generate profits. And according to uh, Harvard, they did a whole year on this in 1913 is that 80% of companies, including the biggest companies in the world are using obsolete or partially obsolete business models. And so when I work with companies, I say, what is your business model? Because what Harvard found is that most company owners or company presidents don't know what their business model is. They come into the position, they backed into it. Uh, they're working all day, every day and so on. But yeah. what is your business model? Two yeah. plus two equals four. Four yeah, plus yeah, four. Yeah. What's, what is the business model? And then I, I got a book from uh, Apple and it was called The 55 Great Business Models. Mm -hmm. And there are 55 different business models or ways of organizing your business to generate profits. So there's a very high probability that your business model is partially obsolete. Yeah. And so what I do is I, is is in order to recruit people into this course. First time I gave this presentation, which I'll give you right now, is it, uh, we had eight, we had a thousand people in the room taking the MBA, yeah. the uh, two-day MBA. I call it total business mastery. And uh, of the thousand, 800 enrolled at 500 to $1,000 each in the business model um, uh, reinvention. And here's the simple thing. I said, if your business is properly organized, then your sales and profitability are going up, 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 steady, mm -hmm. steady, steady, predictably, okay? That's a good business model. You don't need my help. However, if your sales are going up and down and up and down and up and down, mm -hmm. fluctuating and are unpredictable, this could be, something could be wrong. Mm -hmm. You could need uh, a business model uh, do-over. If your sales are flat, then definitely your business model is wrong and if your sales yeah. are declining your business model is is declining and you're heading toward a cliff and you're yeah. going to go broke and you're going to lose everything so uh how many people here would like to come to the course and again 80 percent raised their hands <laughs> that they wanted to come to the course and i got standing ovations at every break i do i do my courses usually for four eight, eight sessions 90 minutes each per day and so we do it 16 one, two, three, four. No, so four sessions a day, eight sessions. I got, I got standing ovations at every break, standing ovations at the end of the day. And people went out and just used these ideas on reinventing their business and transformed their business. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because you and I are talking to the people who are, who are watching this. And they need to know that uh, it is very possible for you to start and build a successful business. 87% of self-made millionaires and billionaires started a business. They started, they started with nothing, zip, and they built a successful business. However, 99% of people who start a business go broke. And yeah. why? Because they don't, have, they don't know what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have the basic skills. There's essential skills. I show that in a business model, there's 10 skills, 10 critical elements that you have to be aware of. And, and I say, and always be open to the possibility that you could be wrong. Yeah. In life, always be open to the possibility that your chosen course of action uh, is wrong. Yeah. Is that if you is is that there's not success at the end of this, there's a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so and so this is one of the reasons I've been successful, uh, and I I I learned this decades ago, uh, two decades ago. They did a study. The Manager Institute did a study. And they asked thousand senior executives, what's the most important quality for success do you believe in the 21st century? 
This is about 1995, 96. And what will be the most important uh, quality for success? And the unanimous agreement was flexibility. Mm. You had to be flexible. You had to be open to change. You had to be willing to pull back, try something else. You had to be willing to um, abandon um, your favorite ideas and go somewhere else. Leave, in the Bible, it says, leave your, your cloak in the hands of the harlot and flee. What you have to do is the harlot is the, which is, is the um, way of doing business that you've fallen in love with, which may have worked at one time, but now the market has changed. Look at today with the coronavirus. Oh my God, the coronavirus has changed. All bets have changed. And there are some companies, if you read, now I read three newspapers a day, including the Wall Street Journal, there are some companies that are actually doing better than they've ever done. Yeah. And there are tens of thousands of companies, even millions, that are just going bankrupt. Yeah. Why is they're going bankrupt? Because they're riding this dying horse toward a cliff. Yeah, they yeah, don't yeah. realize we've got to stop yeah. and say, wait a minute, we have to reevaluate everything. So I teach them, these are the seven, in my one day business model reinvention, here's seven critical factors. And in two days, there's 10 critical factors. And these are taught in top universities. Management consulting firms will come into a company and charge them hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to help them to design or redesign a business model. Yeah. And uh, so every single person who is watching this, if they are a business of some kind, 80 to 90% of them can make themselves extraordinarily valuable by just studying business model design. And how do you do that? Well, this, this is the most amazing damn thing in the world. Yeah. Just go, on, go on to Apple and put in business model design and it'll give you the best selling, most popular courses in, that are offered in the world today. And you can read one book. The, we say in the land of the blind, one eye is king. Yeah. In the land of the blind, one eye is king. In the land of the blind, the person who knows about business model reinvention, redesign, sometimes they call it business model innovation, can be the most valuable person in the company with one book. Uh, and if they read three books, they will be a market leader for the rest of their careers. Three books. And, and it's yeah. one of the things I love about you is, I mean, you've, the numbers you use, you talked about 55 business models, you talked about seven critical facts. Whenever I read one of your books, and I think it probably one of the things that helped me got a job at McKinsey was just the, the way that you're able to break problems down, I think is also amazing. You know, there's when you, whenever you're faced with a big problem, I read one of your books, you split everything into steps. There's the seven key results areas in selling. There's the I'm sure the business models is one part of a larger framework that you have and this ability to break big problems down into small problems and then work out which of those small problems, which, where does the X go, as you say, in focal point on each of those small problems, you know, which is the most important. Uh, so many of us, we approach these big problems. We approach life. We think of life as this big problem, you know? And we're like, how do we solve this problem? But if you break it into small pieces, and you, like you say, if you break the goals down into the long-term goals, and then what are you going to do next week? And what are you going to do tomorrow? Then suddenly all of those big goals become small goals. Um, and I think there's a, it's a huge amount. I would love, we could have a whole, by the way, I think a whole new conversation about changing business models. Cause it's so, I see a lot of this on the forefront of uh, e-commerce, especially in the internet. I, I work with and I'm around constantly entrepreneurs who are making seven, eight uh, figures uh, by themselves with no office premises, totally remote companies. And these are the businesses that are the, the ones that are growing where the ones where that are heading towards the cliff but just have no idea how to respond to it. Um, so I think, but I, I, I honestly, we could talk for, for hours. I wish I could talk to you for hours and hours, but um, I know Maybe. we're at the end of our time. Um, I think I, I had lots of questions. I think you've covered so many of them. I think I could go back and unpack in everything that you've said. I can see so many of the principles that have made you successful. There's so much that inspiring about your story there the traveling you've done, I, I can imagine a huge amount of what makes you successful is you faced, you faced the idea of nothing or success so many times that even if you lost everything today, you would follow your own principles and never give up and know that you could just keep learning. And, and, and you're such an inspiring uh, writer and author, truly a, a master synthesizer. So I'll, I will put some links under this video, wherever you find it, um, you'll be able to find more information. But Brian, if you were to speak to either specifically to the business model um, idea that you've just spoken about, or if you, you know, someone who's watching this, who's super inspired, where would you tell them to start? Uh, maybe 
you know, where should they go online using their iPhones or their phones if that's what they want? And also if they had one book, your, just one of your books, and you were like, this is the first book, you should go away and read it, which one of those books would you choose? Uh, I, I wrote a book uh, a few years ago, and it's called uh, Now uh, Build a Great Business. And what I did is I took the seven most important parts of uh, business model design and wrote it into a book. And I had it published by American Management Association. And I, uh, co-wrote co it with a good friend of mine, Mark Thompson. But I wrote most of the book and he wanted to do a, a co-production. So we did it together. And um, so that would be a good one because it's now the business. many of the best principles in both uh, the two-day MBA and the uh, business model reinvention. Uh, I wanted to tell you one quick thing is that um, I love McKinsey and Company, and I always have. Uh, from the first time I read about it and studied it and, and looked at the philosophy behind it and the history of McKinsey and the quality work that you guys do, I mean, for you to have worked with McKinsey and Company, I think that's just wonderful because they are, I, I think they're just so good. Um, I never had a chance to work with them, but I do know people who did. No, Brian, and McKinsey, McKinsey never had a chance to work with you, I think is the <laughs> right way to phrase it. I think but, I, I see a lot of the very best stuff that I learned at McKinsey that you picked up and, and have improved on infinitely. So, um, you know, just from the way you think to the actual things that you say, I think you would have been in, I mean, had you been at the company, you would have been an incredible leader there. Well, thank you. I, to answer your question, um, I have written 90 books now. Um, I got into a rhythm of writing four books per year. And the reason for that is I finished Maximum Achievement and the publishers didn't help me with it. And they told me, well, you'll have to hire your own publicist. So I hired my own publicist at $5,000 a month and then eventually $10,000 a month to get me interviews. Because that was the only way you could sell a book is you have to be interviewed on radio, television, newspaper uh, and so on. And uh, then people would get the book and then the book would get legs. Any legs it would start to sell by itself because of what they call pass along. And so um, I did all of this stuff. And then after about six months, I started to get a lot of interviews and it went up and up and then we began to taper off and taper off. So I said to my publisher, I said, well, how come I'm not getting any more interviews? They said, well, your time is up. And this is back in 1789. They said, your time is up. I said, what do you mean my time is up? They said, well, you get three months of uh, promotional time for the uh, promotional organizations, radio, television, newspaper. The three months before it comes out, three months afterwards, then they move on. And your time is up. And my time is up. Yeah, your time is up. And I said, well, how do I get more books? <laughs> And they said, well, you have to write another book. Well, I had been producing audio programs and each of the audio programs, uh, originally I could do them just spontaneous, but spontaneously, but I did so many that I had to uh, write out a script and then record them in uh, Nightingale Conant Studios. And so I had all of these scripts. And so what I did is I cleaned them all up and edited them and turned them into books. Mm -hmm. And I just said, well, if, if that's what it takes, then I'm going to write a book every three months. Mm -hmm. And they said, nobody's ever written a book every three months. I'm going to write a book every three months. I'm going to take all the knowledge that I have and I'm going to accumulate other knowledge. And I'm going to take all these scripts from the audio programs. And I wrote three books, four books a year for, for 26 years. Wow. For 26 years. That's amazing. And uh, I put, a, put this book after book after program after program. And all I never had to, I never had to sell a book. I just had to tell my previous publishers, I've got a new book and one or more of them will snatch it out of my hand and give me an advance and buy the book and distribute it. So anyway, but, but, but the, the point that I was, was trying to make is, is, is my thinking of a new book and the new book I'm thinking of is called Turning Points. And you might think about this because I found in my life, I've had turning points. Mm -hmm. And after the turning point, your life is never the same. So it's almost like coming to a crossroads and going in a different direction. Yeah. And so uh, then I realized that the book, unless I wrote a book about myself, it would be of no interest because I was thinking of interviewing you and other people uh, about their turning points. But your turning points are a, a, a complete life story. So anyway, so I said, what are my turning points? And I figured out that I had three and I will pass these on to your friends. 
and I call it the golden triangle. And the first part of the golden triangle was when I accepted responsibility for my life. In fact, I was just looking at something just came out, uh, a newsletter that was being produced where they said, Brian, here's how Brian changed his life when he accepted responsibility. So I was 21 years old, working on construction, living in a one-room uh, apartment, and I realized that if I didn't change, nothing would ever change. So at that time, late at night, freezing winter outside, I made a decision that I am responsible for my own life. Mm. Nobody else. No excuses, no blaming, no attacking my parents, uh, no, no getting angry at anybody else. I'm responsible. And then I started to find that every successful person, the turning point is when they accept responsibility. Mm. They stop making up excuses. They stop blaming other people. They just accept responsibility. And, and from that point on, I never blamed anybody for anything. The, the second part, second uh, point on the, on the turning point was goals, is write down, mm -hmm. write down very clear, specific written goals. And organize your goal by priority and then work on your most important goal and just work on your goals all the time. Yeah. Now, there's a technique that I teach that just to sort of throw in as an extra, it's called the 20 idea method and it will make you rich. More people have become millionaires with this method than any other single way of thinking is what you do is, and let's say you set a goal to earn $100,000 a year. So you write that down, I earn $100,000 per year by this date. You always have a cutoff date. So let's say it would be two, one year, two years from now. I earn this amount of money by this date. And then you rephrase it as a question. How do I earn $100,000 a year by this date? And then you force yourself to write 20 answers to the question. And every answer starts with a verb, an action verb. Uh, I make more sales, I call more people, I uh, study the subject more often, but always it's always an action that you're going to take. And if you write down 20 actions, one of those will pop out and it'll be life-changing. And I've done this exercise for countless people and in every case it's life-changing because I say the first five or 10 answers will be simple and then hard. The next few answers will be more difficult. The last five answers will be murder. You'll yeah. be sitting there looking at the paper, but you've got to force yourself to write at least 20 answers. And over and over again in my classes, the 20th answer has been a life changer. Mm. It just went, well, it was like, 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 ha, explosion, bang, ding. <laughs> the 20th answer, it was the answer they've been looking for. It was the answer that put everything together. So, yeah. so write a list of, of your goals and take and ask, if I could achieve all of these goals, which one within, if I could achieve, any one of these goals within 24 hours, which one goal would have the greatest positive impact on my life? Yeah. And put a circle around your number one goal. And then you go to a separate piece of paper. How could I achieve this goal by this yeah, day? Yeah, yeah. And write down 20 answers. So that's the second part. And the third part is continuous learning. And nothing replaces that. And you know that, and I know that, is nothing replaces continually learning. I still read three hours a day. I'm 76 years old. And I still read three hours a day. I'm constantly look behind me, book after book. I buy two books a week. I subscribe to uh, half a dozen different uh, top magazines. I'm continually learning because all you need is one idea or insight to turn your life around. And uh, so those would be, would be my big three. Accept responsibility. You are where you are and what you are because of yourself. Set goals. And whatever you write down as a goal, I say, there's this is the most magical device of all a pen. Yeah. You yeah. write it on a piece of paper and when you write it down, you're actually imprinting it into your subconscious mind, mm -hmm. which then, as you'll know, turns it over to your superconscious mind. And your superconscious mind then works on your goal 24 hours a day until it comes true. And it will come true at exactly the right time for you. And uh, and 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 then you say, What would be goal number two? And you can have goals of I always talk about financial goals first, because if you have financial goals and you accomplish those, they give you the freedom to accomplish everything. Yeah. So those are the uh, ideas that I would pass on to your so listener. Taking full responsibility is incredibly powerful. Um, I just finished reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is about trauma, and it's one of the major steps in that. Uh, oh. Goals, goal setting, 
I learned everything I know about goal setting from you, uh, all the smart goal setting ideas. And I love the 20 ideas uh, point. And, and I love one of the most powerful things I ever took away from you was thinking on paper. The idea of getting stuff out of your head and writing it down is, is just magical to uh, even yeah. when I work with people to work out what their goals are, often they write what they, you know, we do a vision for their their health in their life or their relationships, they write it down and they look at what they've written down. They're like, wow, that doesn't inspire me at all. You know, sometimes writing it down is the important, it's like clearing away the assumptions that you never really faced and seeing them in front right. of you. So, so responsibility goals and the 20 ideas idea, and then continuous learning. And I love that you read three hours a day. I, I reading, reading is the most, I always say to people, people go, oh, I need mentorship. I need teachers, things like that. I'm like, if I sat down with you as we are now and said, Brian, can you teach me the most important ideas that you've acquired in your life? The first thing you would say is, well, I spent a lot of time synthesizing those in books. <laughs> so go away and read my books. <laughs> and then well, it's, uh, it's interesting that I just get an email today. And this guy is obviously very successful. He said, you, you changed my whole life. He said, with your two recommendations, as I let you off at the airport, Mm -hmm. it's uh continuous learning yeah. and never give up never give up and uh, so success we say is is uh not easy uh it's hard it's very hard but it's extremely possible yeah wow brian i, I mean i as much as i I, I, I know we've already gone 20 minutes over and I'm very conscious of your time and I know you're conscious of, I think that's an amazing place though to finish the interview. I think just wonderful messages, you know, take responsibility, write goals, continuous learning. And if you had to want one, I know it's not a triangle, but maybe you could put a dot in the middle or a circle around is this idea of never giving up. Never giving up. Those enough. things, you know, to you're constantly right. be working at those things. Um, they're very powerful for people to take away. And well, thank I you for sharing. You, I owe you because you showed me how to, turn up the volume <laughs> i have no idea i'm looking at it here now wow all, all of this stuff that I, i've been looking at this for years i never realized i could control it <laughs> it's amazing i one of my favorite things at mckinsey was sitting down I, I used to be there i used to teach the excel modeling um you know the worksheets all the data analysis to the mm -hmm. other analysts and I used to sit with these CEOs and CFOs who I would just in awe of, amazed. And I would take their data and put it into a graph and they would go, this is the most amazing person ever. How have you done these things? <laughs> and I thought, this is my niche. I, this is where I can thrive in the, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so, so there we go, a small thing. But yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for being so generous with uh, sharing your history as well. I, I mean, I could dive into there and uh, so, so much gold and, yeah, I think it's been absolutely fascinating. So thank you for your time. Well, it's been a pleasure. I wish we could talk longer. Yeah, well, anytime. I mean, if you want to just drop me a call, I'm happy to chat about anything. <laughs> if you ever have any technical issues, you know where I am, just drop me an email. <laughs> <laughs> I'll trade one technical tip for another hour of your time any day of the week. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Take care, Brian. Bye.